This is They Create Worlds, episode 114, The Wizards of Surtech. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We're off to see the wizard, but not the Wizard of Oz, or really any kind of wizard of magic. We're going to see some programmers who were able to program one of the most influential games in computer gaming history, Wizardry. That's right. Wizardry has certainly come up before, particularly in the context of our Japanese RPG episode. And as we said at the end of our last episode, When you were thinking computer role-playing games in the 80s, early 90s, even into the late 90s, there were basically two types of computer RPGs in the United States. Those that copied Ultima with its tile-based overworld exploration and tactical combat, and those that emulated wizardry with its first-person dungeons and special pop-outs with animated, sometimes animated, but graphically rendered monsters that you fought. Ultima Wizardry, just about the entire world, could be summed up by those two words. At the very beginning of all of this, Wizardry was the bigger of the two by far. And we already sort of covered Ultima before with our coverage of origin systems and the big story behind that. Yes. And while Richard Garriott was still piddling around trying to figure out how to make all of this tile stuff work and actually make a good game, and that's not being harsh on him, I'm just saying he was at a different place in his knowledge when he started, the wizardry people were already very accomplished programmers that had some great examples to follow and came out with a more polished, more prepared, and ultimately more popular product. However, as we'll see, that will not last. Over time, as Richard gets better and better and better at making Ultima games, Wizardry, for the longest period of time, just stands still and is ultimately surpassed. But this is not just the story of Wizardry, even though that will occupy a lot of what we're talking about, because we are also talking about the company behind Wizardry, Surtech Software. As I kind of intimated again at the end of the last episode, This company evolves in a very different manner from almost all of its contemporaries. Even though it's formed in a similar manner to some of the early companies like Online Systems and Broderbund, where you get a hotshot programmer and some people with business knowledge together and they market product, it doesn't get run in the same way and it doesn't explode in the same way. We talked about how in the 90s through consolidation, basically all of the important computer game companies that were founded in the early 1980s either got super huge and devoured other companies or got devoured. You can basically throw every company into that. Activision and EA getting huge and companies like Interplay and SSI and even Sierra getting devoured. Surtech doesn't really have either one of those fates. It just kind of does its own thing in its own way, has some success for a while, and then just kind of fades away. We're going to look into some of that and some of the reasons for that as this episode continues. Okay, so coming off on the tail end of 
our previous episode where we looked at this transition period between mainframes and time-shared computers, the transition over into the Trinity of the Commodore PET, the TRS-80, and the Apple II, who are the people that came to make up Surtech and which platform did they ultimately go, you know, I really like that TRS-80, let's make our game on that. Well, you know, it really doesn't come together quite in that kind of way. In order to do the tale of Surtech software justice, we really have to go back, back to the old world, back to the mid-20th century, and a gentleman in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia... Nikola Tesla? (laughs) ...by the name of Bedrich Syrotek. Mr. Syrotek was an architect of some renown. I mean, not a world-famous architect by any stretch, but an architect who was much in demand in his native country and became quite successful, was even able to buy and remodel his own castle in good old Czechoslovakia. During World War II, he was a supporter of the partisans who were resisting Nazi rule. He sheltered resistance fighters and whatnot in his castle. So he became something of a local hero in that sense as well. However, as a very successful entrepreneurial type, when the communist revolution happened in Czechoslovakia soon after the end of the war, he was no longer one of the good guys, according to the new government. He knew that his days were numbered in the country, so he made provisions to immigrate and get the heck out of there. He was able to do so basically by giving uh, the communists all of his wealth, all of his property. He wasn't planning to come back anyway, even though obviously that hurt. Most of his worth was tied up in real estate, so it wasn't stuff he could carry with him anyway, and under the new communist regime, he couldn't sell it. So even though obviously that was painful, it was stuff that he couldn't take with him anyway, and was able to immigrate to Canada where he continued to serve as an architect. Once he came west, he anglicized the spelling of his first name to Frederick. Bedrich, and I could be pronouncing that wrong because I don't really know Czech, but that is the Czech equivalent of the name Frederick. Bedrich Sirotek, Czech name, became Frederick Sirotek Sr. Frederick Sirotek Sr. had a son, Frederick Sirotek Jr., Fred Jr. got into some very interesting entrepreneurial businesses. He did work in the construction business with his father, which makes sense. But then he also got into something completely different. Souvenir spoons. Souvenir spoons. So what are you talking about here? One with like the beer steins in Germany where I have like pretty pictures at the bottom of my spoon or... At the end of my spoon handle or something. What, <laughs> right. What right. is so, it? What is that? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm not f- too familiar with, with souvenir spoons myself. I guess that used to be a thing. But right, that's exactly what it is. You know, I don't know whether it be cities or landmarks or businesses or whatever have commemorative spoons that you could buy in the gift shop or 
whatever in order to serve as souvenirs. And I don't know why this was a thing. I don't know if this was just a thing in Canada or if it was something that was big across North America in the 1970s. It's a different time. What can I say? But yes, he was in the souvenir spoon business. One of the things that Mr. Siratek needed in the creation of his spoons was resin sand. Resin sand was very important in the manufacturing process. So he ended up doing a lot of business with a company just across the border in Ogdensburg, New York, way, way, way up in upstate New York. One person once said in a magazine article on Siratek when describing Ogdensburg, he said, you know what you've heard about the Great White North? This is north of that. Oh, my. <laughs> or actually, I think he said it the other way. I think he said that's south of here. But the point is, way, way, way up in the north near the Canadian border, Ogdensburg, New York, no interstate, no good transportation infrastructure at all, really. I mean, some rail, I think, which is why the resin sand could ship out of there. But it's not a place where people just kind of ended up when they were wandering across the United States or even across upstate New York. You're lucky to get there by dog sled or something? <laughs> something like that. No, I mean, they had highways, obviously, but just local and state highways, not federal and interstate highways. There was a company that Fred Siratek ended up doing a lot of business with called Resin Sands. Well, that's poetic. <laughs> yes, exactly. Resin Sands was owned by a woman named Janice Woodhead, who was actually English. This is a very international story. Janice Woodhead was an English woman, but she married a chemist. Then they relocated to Canada in 1966 and then to the United States in 1973. And that's when her husband, the research chemist, Mr. Woodhead, I don't have his first name handy, established this company, Resin Sands. But then uh, he died in 1975, just two years after they established the company. So Janice actually ended up being the one running it. And Fred Siratek was relying on them for sand. And then he ended up investing in the company as well to have more control over his supply. So you've got this souvenir spoon company, Fred Siratek, up in Canada. And you have this resin sands, Janice Woodhead, in Ogdensburg, New York. Well. What does any of this have to do with anything? Well, obviously, since they messed with all this sand, they made silica chips and then made some sort of computer or something. Good guess, good guess, but no. What this has to do with is the volatility of the resin sand trade. Because there are a lot of chemicals involved in the process, prices were fluctuating all the time. The price was just moving very fast. So there would be delays in being able to get necessary materials. There would be cost overruns in getting materials. It was just kind of a mess. I mean, the business was still profitable. I mean, it was still worth it in the end. Everyone was making money. But certainly, both Siratek and Woodhead thought, there has got to be a way to do this better. Like, say, maybe through a computer program. At least to some sort of computer program that could automate the buying and selling, inventory management, better calculate the ratios for the chemical and alchemical processes that are going on. Yeah, a database program, essentially, to, to keep track of the different chemicals and materials and their costs, and which you could 
input in information as you learn it and track it very easily. Fred Sirotek came up with this idea of, of why don't we do this to get some more certainty in our business. And it just so happened that Janice had a very bright son, currently in college at the time, by the name of Robert Woodhead, who would be absolutely perfect for seeing this done for the families. Robert Woodhead, I don't know exactly how he discovered David All's book, 101 Basic Computer Games, but when he was in high school at the Ogdensburg Free Academy, somehow he got a hold of this book and it just fascinated him. We've talked about the book before, of course, in the context of time sharing, and even in last week's episode is one of the very first commercial sources gathering together all the games that were being made across the country and compiling them in a book of type-in code for other people to use. So he found this book, he devoured this book, he was fascinated by this book about the idea of being able to make a computer do something by typing in these commands. However, as I told you, Ogdensburg was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So even though this was a period of time when more and more high school students were getting exposed to computers through time-sharing terminals, Ogdensburg Free Academy was not one of the places that had any time-sharing terminals. So he had the book, but he had no way to use it. So not having a computer was not going to deter young Robert from doing something, anything related to programming. So he actually discovered a computer teaching device called CARDIAC. It's an acronym. It's in all caps. That was created by a Bell Labs engineer by the name of David Hagelbarger. What this was was a cardboard fold-out manual that allowed you to essentially pretend you were programming. It taught you basics of programming and it allowed you to punch stuff or mark stuff on the cardboard here and here and pretend that you were making computer programs. It was intended as a public school aid in a time when a lot of schools didn't have computers, but like so many of the other people we've talked about from this period, this engineer felt that computer use and not just computer use, but computer programming was going to be an indispensable skill in the future. So he saw this as a kind of stopgap to allow schools that couldn't afford a computer to teach programming. So that's why it's Cardiac. It's the Cardboard Illustrative Aid to Computation. Woodhead got himself one of these because it you know, wasn't that expensive. It's something he could afford. He started programming on cardboard. I guess you can don't have any way to really test the program you coded, but at least you get the mechanics of it and have maybe some kind of feedback, I guess. Yeah, now that kept him going for a couple of years. Um, by his junior year, he was able to get some time on the Dartmouth timesharing system. We've talked about the DTSS before. It wasn't nearby. There was a college. He didn't indicate which one, but a college about 30 miles from Ogdensburg had terminals connected to the Dartmouth timesharing system, that pioneering timesharing system where BASIC got its start and all that good stuff. We talk about it in our timesharing episode. So on weekends, he would go down and use the terminals at the college. And so uh, he got to do some real programming. But again, it wasn't through his school. I mean, it was a struggle. It was, you know, 30 minutes down, 30 minutes back, using up his weekends, but he loved it. And that's how he started to really get into programming. So Woodhead went to Cornell after he graduated, you know, very fine school, uh, and majored in computer science there. I mean, he was hooked on programming by this point. He took a job 
with the local computer land, which was one of the very first computer store chains in the country. Got a job with the local computer land in 1976 to help cover his tuition. Computer land, they sold Apple IIs. That was their big seller. So, of course, he was exposed to the Apple II when he worked for the computer land once the Apple II came out in 77, but he could not afford one. He desperately wanted his own computer. This was just perfect for what he liked to do. All the programming could not afford one. So he ended up going down to the local Radio Shack in Ogdensburg and purchasing a TRS-80, which he was able to get even cheaper than the normal price because, again, and this is not, uh, this is not to belabor the point too much, Ogdensburg was not the most happening place in the country. It was not necessarily down with the new times. So the, the local Radio Shack was having some trouble moving those TRS-80 computers, so he got himself a pretty good deal on one. So he bought himself a uh, TRS-80, which promptly, sadly, got him fired. Wait, what? <laughs> well, you have to remember, as we talked about, the TRS-80, of course, was created by the Tandy Corporation, which was also the owner of the Radio Shack chain of electronic stores. So that was the exclusive source for those computers. Computerland sold Apple IIs, and his boss basically said, it would be like working at a Ford dealership and driving a Chevy. So <laughs> his boss let him go from the computer land because <laughs> he was using the competition's product. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. But uh, he was able to find another job. He got a job working for Cornell's School of Hotel Administration, part of Cornell University. And he wrote a program to display the school menu. Very fancy. I guess if we need to print out the school menu, that works. <laughs> he also started programming in BASIC on the side for the TRS-80. He released a tape with a few simple games on it that he adapted from other sources, probably mostly 101 BASIC computer games, since, of course, he had that book. Maybe some of the stuff he was exposed to on the Dartmouth timesharing system. Nothing special, nothing fancy. It's just he put out a tape of software. I don't think it probably did that well. And he was also, at school, exposed to the Play-Doh system. We've talked about Plato before. Someday we'll do a whole episode on Plato because it's absolutely worthy of it. Plato, uh, just as a brief reminder, was a pioneering, amazing computer system housed at the University of Illinois, but with terminals at other institutions around the country. It could support, by the time Plato 4 came along, the fourth version, it could support 1,000 users simultaneously. It was a time-shared system through terminals. These terminals incorporated plasma screens. Glowy and pretty. Yeah, the plasma screen was basically invented for Plato. I, mean, I don't know the, the history well enough to know if there was, wasn't some lab somewhere that was also working on plasma screen technology. There may have been, but the plasma screens of Plato were kind of the first ones that were deployed in the field, at least on a massive uh, scale, and they were touch screens. This was cutting-edge technology 20 years later. We're talking about the 70s here. <laughs> it was a real-time system, a graphical real-time system. So there were all sorts of things like electronic mail and chat functionality, instant messenger type functionality, all sorts of incredible things on this system. Pretty much late 1990s internet back in the 70s. Yeah, it's, it was truly a stunning, stunning system that we will definitely give its due one of these days. 
he became very deeply involved with the Plato system and very deeply involved with playing games on the Plato system. Because even though this was an educational system, and even though educational uses were prioritized, and even though games were generally actively discouraged for the most part, many, many games popped up on the system. These were unlike any of the games we've talked about, like Star Trek and Hammurabi, all these things that are mostly text-based. We're talking about games that featured graphics, sometimes three-dimensional graphics, and we're talking about games that were multiplayer, even massively multiplayer. Not massively multiplayer as we would measure it in 2020, but massively multiplayer in the sense that you could have six, eight, ten, a dozen people playing the same game at the same time in competition or cooperation. We're talking about role-playing games where you could actually explore dungeons with a party of adventurers that were other people, like a modern MMO. (laughs) It's just stunning what was capable on the system, and Robert Woodhead was right at the heart of that. So much at the heart of it that in 1980, he was asked to leave the university for a time because his grades were very low because he was spending all of his time playing computer games on Plato. I mean, this guy, this guy was hooked. The good news is, in the midst of all this, he was very talented with computers. So he was asked by Fred Sirotek and by his mother, Janice, to go ahead and put together this database system. So he did. He wrote this inventory software, inventory database software. This is what allowed him to finally get an Apple II, because part of his deal for creating this program, which he wanted to create on the Apple II, was that he get an Apple II to program it on. So the man finally got his Apple. He went ahead and created this program called InfoTree. He did it not in BASIC, that slow and cumbersome language, not in assembly, which is more powerful, but, but finicky and more difficult. Fast and tedious. Yes, and tedious but in another language called Pascal. Oh, good old Pascal. That's right. You have to understand something about BASIC to understand something about Pascal. BASIC was created for ease of learning, ease of use by novices. We've talked about BASIC before. Part of doing that was to arrange complexity in layers so that you could do very simple things with just a few commands, and then you would learn some simple things and learn some other things to build on that, learn some other things to build on that, until you're finally doing very complex things, or at least as complex as BASIC can handle. That's great for getting started programming, but it leads to massive spaghetti code if you're doing anything complex, because... It relies on all of these very basic, simple commands, so you're always routing back through these basic commands, and it just leads to a mess of code if you're doing anything complex. Well, there was another programmer contemporaneous with the Dartmouth people that was also interested in getting ordinary people to learn how to code, but he wanted them to actually really learn how to code. So he wanted to create a language that was simpler than your Fortran or your COBOL, and certainly much simpler than your assembly or machine language, but was structured properly so that when you coded in it, your code was clean and beautiful and wonderful and structured at all times. 
This gentleman was actually a Swiss fellow by the name of Niklaus Wirth, who was based at the Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, Switzerland. So he created Pascal with novices in mind. He tried to make it as easy as possible, but he also made the structure of it very, very rigid, which is both good and bad. The way that uh, Jimmy Mayer describes it in Digital Antiquarian, uh, you know, he's got such a great blog on computer game history, is that in Pascal, you can create a beautiful symphony, just using a music metaphor. All of the instruments in harmony, every part of the orchestra in its place, everything working together to create something beautiful. But you can't do swing or improvisation. You have to be doing things the way Pascal wants you to be doing things, or you're not doing anything at all. Does that sound about right to you? I'm sure you've had some experience with Pascal, probably. I've actually never coded in Pascal, but I've heard the hard and uh, <laughs> trials and tribulations of it. Sure. I actually, as part of my curriculum when I was actually in college, I was the first class generation to go through that got to skip Pascal. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's something that hasn't lasted because it was big for a while. I mean, the company Borland International basically became a huge, one of the biggest software companies in existence because of its Turbo Pascal language. So there was a time when Pascal was huge, but it kind of got squeezed out because, you know, the, the novice coders would go do basic. And then, of course, C came in. I mean, C had already existed, but C on PCs, as PCs became more robust, had more memory. C became kind of the go-to language to do things in. And Pascal, because it was more finicky than even C is, just kind of slowly got shunted to the side. And like you said, got to the point where it wasn't even being taught anymore at computer science programs. But there was a time when it was a big deal. And a part of what made it such a big deal were a couple of things. First of all, it was ridiculously portable. Now, Verth was working in the world of mini computers. He was not thinking about microcomputers when he created this language. I mean, it was created in, in the late 60s, early 70s. But he wanted it to be widely available in the same way that the basic people wanted basic widely available because he did see it as a teaching tool. So he created the P-Machine emulator. You know, we talked about the Z-Machine of Zork. Well, one of the main inspirations of that was the P-Machine, which allowed compiled Pascal code to be run on anything. So again, just like with Zork being able to create a massively huge game that normally wouldn't fit into the memory of a microcomputer like a Trash 80 or an Apple II, the P machine worked in the same way. You could create a Pascal program and then compile it and then interpret it down to these primitive microcomputers and you could create a game that was much, or a program, in this case a game, that was much bigger than that computer could normally do because you could swap in portions of memory, swap chunks of memory in and out of the P-Machine in order to have something much larger. So I can sort of see a interpreter here. I have something that's almost akin to, say, Java, where I program my code in Java and then it's compiled down into a jar file, which is generally how Java programs are handed, handed off. And then I have an interpreter of that jar file that can run on a phone, mm -hmm. that can run on a PC, that can run on an ARM processor, that can run on whatever. 
and that's sort of akin to a more modern day rendition of it. Of course, obviously, it's not one to one, but right. sort of in that vein. Right. To my understanding, as as I often say, I'm not a technical person, but uh, to my understanding, that sounds about right. It became something available on microcomputers through the work of another guy by the name of Ken Bowles, who was a professor at the University of California, San Diego. He was a big time-sharing guy, but the powers that be at the university were still very much in the old mainframe world. They were still fully on board with the batch processing, hulking iron, IBM mainframe kind of computers, and he was trying to get them more into the time-sharing interactive kind of scene He managed to get the university to replace its old CDC computer with a Burroughs time-sharing system. Burroughs is another one of these seven dwarves that was uh, in the computer industry for a time. But then in 1974, they went back and they got an IBM mainframe and they ditched the Burroughs system. And they didn't even bother to tell him. He found out about it when the Burroughs people called him and were like, hey, you're ditching our computer. What's the deal? And he was like, I don't know. What is the deal? So he was very frustrated that he was kept out of the loop and that he felt that the administration at his school was just horribly behind the times. He decided, since he didn't have access to a time-sharing computer where he could teach his classes programming on these kind of systems, you know, they were just going to learn the old punch card stuff, he got himself a P-Kit, which was a Pascal kind of development system, that allowed him to work in Pascal with his students. And then, you know, he had students that then they went on and made some changes to it. They expanded the language. They put some more modern conveniences in that Verth hadn't been thinking of a few years before. They put a great text editor in it, which is something that it had not had before. That version of Pascal, which uh, was referred to as UCSD Pascal, University of California, San Diego, kind of became the standard for Pascal from that point forward. And you remember I mentioned Turbo Pascal a second ago. Turbo Pascal was derived from this version of Pascal, which was a refinement of the original version. Now, Bowles was very into this emerging microcomputer scene as well. And so Pascal, the UCSD Pascal, very quickly became something that started hitting the microcomputer scene. Again, it wasn't for everybody. Most of our early game programmers were not using it. But Woodhead did in the creation of InfoTree. That allowed him to create a very powerful database inventory management program relative to the power of the Apple II. And they decided that it was so good, that it worked so well, that it was worth exploring selling this database program to other people. Always good when the side project becomes good enough you're willing to sell it. Exactly. In about, uh, I think, 1979, Robert decides that he's going to take the program to a computer fair or computer show that is going to take place in Trenton, New Jersey kind of the nearest place to them where there's something that's going to be going on. Still a bit of a drive. Going to take the program there so that they can, uh, people there can get a look at it. So you could fly there or you could drive there. Well, they didn't want to fly there because he was going to have to take his computer with him to demo it. 
and they were going to have to put it in baggage, and they really didn't trust putting that in baggage. So he was going to have to drive there, but um, I don't know if he couldn't drive or if they just didn't want to send him alone on such a long drive. But Fred Siratek suggests, well, why doesn't my son uh, Norman, Norman Siratek, drive you to the show? Norm was a college student at the time himself. Uh, He was at Clarkson College in their management program and was actually just getting ready to switch to engineering. So he'd had some business classes, but he was also a little bit familiar with the technical side of things. So though this was not computer engineering or electrical engineering, this was actually engineering engineering. He actually ended up leaving Clarkson because they didn't have a very good drafting course there. So he ended up joining his father at the company in Canada and taking drafting courses on the side. So he had a few business courses. He was working in his father's business. So Fred was like, well, I'll have my son Norman take you. Norman was happy to do this. He kind of figured he'd probably hit up Atlantic City nearby, hit the casinos while uh, Robert was showing off his program. But it didn't end up working that way because he got to this computer show with Robert and he was just fascinated by this emerging world of microcomputers that he hadn't even realized existed. He was kind of an independent guy, Norm was, and he was kind of chafing at working as a regular employee and doing school on the side and everything. So he decided, well, let's market this thing. Let's do this together. And, you know, at this point, Robert Woodhead's still a college student as well. You know, he he had the year off in 1980, but I mean, he was still technically a college student. So the idea was that he would take control of managing this business while Robert's finishing school and kind of be responsible for the sale of this thing. You know, they're going into business together with this database program. So they decided to form this company, Serotech, as a pun on the family name. Serotech, the name, it's a Czech name, it's spelled S-I-R-O-T-E-K. So the tech of Serotech is T-E-K. So they created Serotech software, but tech spelled the usual way, T-E-C-H, as a play on the family name. Well, that was great until they started getting tech support calls at home at four in the morning. Oh, dear. For InfoTree because of the name. I mean, so they bought this software from this company called Serotech. Then there's something wrong. Well, I've heard that they're up in wherever. Let's look in the phone book, Serotech, Serotech, Serotech. Aha, there's Serotech. Call that, but it's, <laughs> uh, you know, they don't notice the difference between the K and the CH. So they call that number instead. So it's like, okay, well, maybe calling it Serotech wasn't the best idea for our sanity. And so that's the point that they changed the name to Surtech instead. They just got rid of the O and named it Surtech Software instead. So they start with this infantry program. You remember that Robert Woodhead is also enamored with games, and he's enamored with the Play-Doh system. So he's been working on game stuff at the time, too. And in particular, there was a game on the Play-Doh system called Empire, which was kind of a strategic conquer-the-universe kind of game where you're sending your ships around and landing on planets and taking over planets, and uh, you know other players are doing the same. Because remember, this is real-time multiplayer. You have that on Play-Doh, even though you have it virtually nowhere else. It's a game that was pretty popular on the system, so Woodhead basically took that game and translated it almost entirely whole cloth from the Play-Doh to the Apple II, made it a little more arcadey, a little more action-y, had you zipping around shooting at things uh, while you're conquering planets. 
and then called this game Galactic Attack. It's basically a riff on this game Empire. In uh, early 1981, they began offering Galactic Attack alongside Infotree. These are the two products of Sirtec software. Now, Frederick Sirtec, the father, who was still kind of keeping an eye on this thing and was invested in it, he saw computers as serious business machines. He was not convinced that this game thing is something that they should really be doing. He just thought that, that wasn't a good fit for computers. We know now how very wrong he was about that, but that was his belief. However, when Galactic Attack started selling very well, he changed his mind and they decided, okay, this is selling. This game thing, I guess, is something people want. What are we going to do next? Well, Woodhead, again, from the Plato system, had the idea of doing a role-playing game. He knew Dungeons and Dragons, and he knew the various dungeon crawls, D&D derivatives, that had appeared on the Plato system. So he started working on a game called Paladin that would kind of emulate some of these Plato experiences that he had. Well, not long after that, through mutual contacts, this, that, and the other thing, he actually learned that there was another Cornell student that was working on something very similar and ends up meeting up with a gentleman by the name of Andrew Greenberg. So now we have to tell the other side of the beginning of this collaboration. Andrew Greenberg was also a native of upstate New York, and his introduction to computers was actually at the racetrack. Like the horse racing track. Yeah, because his father actually ran a racetrack. They used a mini-computer to run the betting systems, run the, the ranking systems, all of that kind of stuff that you have at a racetrack. So one of the employees at his dad's company showed him the, the computer and everything and fell in love with it and became very interested in it. So in 1975, he came to Cornell. His major was operations research and industrial engineering, but he worked a lot with computers as well and was really into programming and actually got a job doing programming for uh, Cornell's IT department. That's how he put himself through school. So both of these guys are using their programming chops to put themselves through school. Just like Woodhead, Greenberg was exposed to Plato and started playing the games on Plato and fell in love with Plato. But he was a bit more serious than Woodhead. In fact, he even was able to get a job as a, essentially a system administrator on the Plato system. One of the jobs of those people was to monitor for when people were playing games and kick them out, boot them off the system, because that was hogging resources from serious educational projects. So Greenberg and Woodhead were actually adversaries for a time, because Woodhead was constantly trying to figure out loopholes and figure out ways to get on the system and play games when he wasn't supposed to be, and Greenberg was often the cat tracking this mouse and uh, was the one that was responsible for booting them off. So they didn't really know each other, like, personally, but they had a history with each other, as it turns out. Sort of like <laughs> in a very early version of InfoSec, where you have the red team and the blue team, and they're constantly <laughs> doing a cat and mouse back and forth. I want to make the computer do the thing I want to do. I want to get into this system, do what I want to do. No, we need to lock the system down. We need to have the thing be nice and calm. Peaceful, productive, get out of here, bad guy. <laughs> right. Greenberg started getting into computer game programming in 1978. By this time, he and his friends had been playing Dungeons & Dragons for a time. He was big into D&D. &D. 
And you have to remember that D&D at this time, AD&D didn't come out until 1978, the exact year that we're talking about here. Before that, you just had the basic Dungeons and Dragons, which did have some expansions and modules, but it really was focused on the dungeons back then. I mean, these days, a role-playing game and a game of D&D can take so many different forms. It can be very stats-oriented, very dungeon-crawl-oriented, or it can be very role-playing-oriented, where you're just riffing with your friends and coming up with crazy things to try. Well, it was still very much in the explore dungeons, kill monsters, gain experience, gather treasure mode at this period of time. That's what Dungeons & Dragons was. Even though they called it a role-playing game back then, too, character development was not necessarily a central focus, even if some groups, even at that early date, engaged in it. It wasn't something the rule system was specifically necessarily pushing. So he's playing D&D. He's also playing the early Play-Doh games, particularly one called D&D, just the letters D-N-D, which was a top-down dungeon exploration, monster-fighting, treasure-gathering game. And then another game called Oubliette by a guy named Jim Schwager, who was another D&D player who was on the Play-Doh system and thought, well, you know, Play-Doh could be a great way to automate the tedious tasks of doing a dungeon crawl. And so he created a game, Oubliette, which was very uh, reminiscent of Dungeons & Dragons dungeon crawling. Oubliette is essentially (laughs) French for, for dungeon, not exactly, but I mean, it's a kind of imprisonment space. He starts fiddling around... Basically, the week before finals, when everyone's supposed to be studying, Greenberg and his friends just spent the whole week goofing off. Towards the end of this period of time, he was kind of just getting sick of it. Not that he wanted to go back and study, but he was like, I'm all D&D'd out. I just want to be alone. Don't bother me. I don't want to do anything. And so his friends, seeing him all grumpy, were like, well, you know, why don't you go and put D&D on a computer or something? And he was like, why don't I go put D&D on a computer or something? You know, they meant it as a joke, but he took it seriously. So he had an Apple II, and he went ahead and created a game that was, it took the first-person perspective of Oubliette, because Oubliette was a wireframe dungeon game. D&D was a top-down game, but it had fairly detailed pictures for the monsters. Because remember, this is a high-resolution plasma display. So it actually had pretty good pictures of monsters. It was line art because it had to be, but it was pretty good line art. So he took kind of the first-person perspective of Oubliette and a lot of the mechanics and whatnot. He took the more detailed monster pictures from D&D, and he started creating his own Dungeons & Dragons-style game. And he called this game Basic Wizardry. There you go. You start getting that name. That's right. So the two of them are kind of working on these games separately. They end up learning about each other through mutual friends or whatever, and so they end up joining together to create an Apple II RPG. Oubliette is definitely the major inspiration, this Play-Doh game. Both of them had played it, both of them liked it. The wireframe, first-person exploration thing comes from Oubliette. They took a lot of mechanics from it. I believe I've read that even some of the spell names in the original wizardry are identical to some of the spell names in Oubliette. And, you know, they're not just names like Fireball or Magic Missile. They're distinct enough names that they clearly got them from Oubliette. That was a lot of it, with, again, these kind of monster pictures coming from D&D. 
And they did it in Pascal. That was the big contribution of Robert Woodhead, was that he was working in Pascal, he knew Pascal, and they go ahead and do wizardry in Pascal, which allowed them to make a more elaborate game than machines of the time uh, necessarily could have otherwise. So kind of the division of labor on this, when they started working together, is Greenberg did a lot of the game design. He kind of had a knack for that. He was putting together databases and tables and figuring out stats for things and all of that kind of stuff. And then Woodhead, who I'm sure also contributed ideas as well, but the main genius that Woodhead brought to it is that he knew exactly how to get from point A to point B and make this happen. He was the guy that knew Pascal. He was a real hotshot programmer, I think even more so than Greenberg was, probably. So he provided a lot of the programming oomph. He provided the technical know-how while Greenberg brought the ideas and the format and the structure. So sort of like game design versus coder. Mm -hmm. Though they overlapped because they both had abilities in both. That was where a lot of that division was. So basic wizardry became wizardry dungeons of despair. They had a clever way of doing the graphics because... Even back then, you know, trying to do anything graphically was very slow, and they did decide to do this in high-res. We talked in the last episode about how there was a low-res and a high-res mode, and if you did low-res mode, you got lots of pretty colors, but you got blocky, blocky, blocky sprites. And if you did high-res mode, you got many fewer colors, and it ran more slowly, and you needed more memory, but you got higher-resolution pictures. So they do it in high-res mode, and... They want the 3D look, so they do the wireframe dungeon, but what they do is they just put it up in the corner, just in the the little corner of the screen is your view of the dungeon, and then most of the rest of the screen is taken up by stats. Stats of your characters, information on the dungeon, on things you're fighting, all of that. So it's graphical, but a lot of it is text, which allows it to run on the primitive systems of the day and have these wireframe models. They also do, like I said, the detailed monster art, detailed for the time, you have to remember. So when monsters appear and you have to fight monsters, then the monster you're fighting appears in that window up there. And then you get a list of commands like fight and spell and run to use on the monster. Any old school Dragon Quest fans out there are going to say, this sounds familiar. Yeah. Hmm. Because as we talked about in our Birth of JRPG episode, basically what Dragon Quest did is they took the tile-based overworld and tile-based exploration of Ultima and then put in a wizardry-style monster screen and wizardry-style commands. That's how you got the JRPG back in the day. And then they also decided that they would allow you to control a party of characters as well. They did this basically because they wanted the game to have a sense of danger to it. You know, this was a period of time when people hadn't really thought out game design and accessibility in all that much detail. So it becomes a question of how do you ease people into a program? How do you keep people coming back? What is good game design? Their decision on that was that good game design is that there should be a palpable sense of danger when you're doing this dungeon exploration. They wanted you to feel like death was around every corner, and the only way to do that is make sure that death could very well be around every corner. So they made a game that was fairly difficult. 
They tried to make it as balanced as they could. They tried to make it as fair as they could. They didn't always succeed in that, but they really did try. But they did want it to be hard, and they wanted death to be death. But they found that if you're just taking one character through and death lies around every corner, then you could end up dying and getting frustrated and getting stuck and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, they thought back to these multiplayer games on the Play-Doh system. And one of the advantages of that multiplayer system is that if your character died and you had to start over, you could have your friends, more powerful characters, kind of escort you through the content and help power level you, help get you back up to speed. So they figured this was a good solution for the difficulty problem is give you a party of characters. That way, as long as your whole party doesn't wipe, you can retreat from the dungeon, you can create some new characters to join them, and then your stronger characters can help power level them again through the earlier levels. So it felt like a way to try to keep a little accessibility in there even through the difficulty, and it was also a way of trying to recreate as best as possible the feel of the multiplayer RPGs on the Play-Doh system. This made it very different from other early RPGs, particularly like Acalabeth and Ultima from Richard Garriott, which were you control a single character that's doing all this stuff. Now, obviously, Ultima went multiplayer later, too, but Wizardry was very early with that. And again, it, it all goes back to the unique Plato environment that they had access to. So you get your group together, you go through levels of the dungeon, you level up, you fight monsters, you get better equipment, all to take out the wizard Wordna at the bottom of the dungeon. That's your goal, is to defeat the evil wizard Wordna. If you were to spell that out, you would note that it is Andrew, spelled backwards, <laughs> as in Andrew Greenberg. In the town, you know, before you would descend to the dungeon, in the place you would kind of get your party together before you descended, there was Trebor there, hmm. which is Robert, spelled backwards. So they inserted themselves in the game, good Lord Trebor in town, an evil wizard Wordna, <laughs> to defeat on the lowest level of the dungeon. So they're working on this game in 1981. One thing that also sets it apart from a lot of games of this time period is that Greenberg had a group of college buddies that were very into games and had played his basic wizardry before, and they would set this group of friends, and I think some of Robert's friends too probably, they would set their friends loose on wizardry and have them play it a lot. So it was actually very extensively play-tested, which was unusual for the time. Now, you know, if you're coming at the game today, it still seems pretty brutal compared to a modern game, because like I said, they were going for a level of difficulty that a game designer probably wouldn't today. You'd have difficulty levels today or special achievements or that kind of stuff to put more difficulty in. But it wasn't necessarily the most accessible game as a result of the difficulty level they wanted. But they tried to make it as bug-free and as smooth an experience as possible. And they did this very extensive playtesting. So they had a lot of QA that went into it. They had a bunch of people who are really experienced with the idea and concept of dungeon crawls and going in there and going, okay, I know how to go in here. I know how to optimize my characters. I know how to, okay, yeah, I may die or lose one or two people here, but I'll pull my guys back, retool everything, go back in there. Wait, I made it all the way to the end. How many of my people survived? Report that in. Oh, if you do this, this, and the other thing that I would expect to do in a standard dungeon crawl, it crashes the game. Fix that. Right. 
So, you know, another thing that sets this apart from the early games is that the early Ultima games are really rough. And Richard Garrett himself admits that. He says that the first three Ultima games, and also Akalabath, which was the game he did before the Ultima games that he sometimes now refers to as Ultima Zero, Richard himself admits that those games were all about Richard learning how to program. There's a lot of rough edges in the first couple of Ultima games. For instance, he included the first-person dungeons from Akalabath, and you don't even, I think it's in Ultima 2, you, you literally don't even need to do them. They're there, but there's no <laughs> benefit to actually going in them. I mean, not everything fit together very well. That's fine. He was learning. A lot of people were learning. But that's one of the things that set Wizardry apart, is it was polished from the get-go, and it was because of all of this. They also took it to Applefest, which was a short-lived but very popular Apple II show in Boston in the early 80s. In June 1981, they took a copy of what was still in progress, Dungeons of Despair, to Applefest and essentially did an open beta. They essentially were giving out this half-completed version of the game with promises that they would get full version of the game when the game was finally ready. They'd get updated discs. So they practically did an open beta through Applefest as well, which, again, incredibly unusual for the time. They were very much ahead of their time for doing all of this stuff. Exactly. You know, one of the things, so Sirtec was technically run by Fred Sirotek, the father. He had the title of president, but he wasn't really the guy running the day-to-day. He was more serving as an advisor. You know, he'd been in business a long time, so putting him in the president's position gave them a little bit of prestige and a little bit of a feeling of experience that they wouldn't otherwise have. But he wasn't actually serving as a president running day to day. He was just offering advice. The company was really being run by Norm, who was kind of doing all the finance and administration stuff. And then Norm's brother, Robert Sirotek, who was doing a lot of the sales and marketing side of things. So Robert Sirotek, unlike his brother, he also went to Clarkson College like his brother Norm did. But unlike his brother, he actually completed a business degree there. But he was also in programming. He was working in institutional computing at a mini-computer company doing programming. So he also had this kind of business side and technical side. And he quite simply just hated his job. He didn't like the ins and outs of institutional programming. So after Infotree and Galactic Attack started taking off and Surtex started becoming kind of a real company, Robert Sirotek also joined the company. And so now you had kind of a division between Norm doing finance and administration and Robert doing sales and marketing and kind of jointly running the company together with Fred Sirotek technically serving as president, but really serving more of an advisor role than a president role. But one of the important things that Fred Sirotek did, one of the things that he advised, is he said that in order for your product to be taken seriously— It needs to look like a serious product, and it needs to be an understandable product. So he was insistent that Wizardry, Dungeons of Despair, have a real box with a fancy logo and fancy art and all of that, and a real intelligible instruction manual that ordinary folks picking up this game would be able to read and understand and get into playing the game. 
So Wizardry was one of the very early products to ship in a box rather than a baggie. It wasn't first, but it was very early. Robert Siratek wrote an instruction manual for the game that was a much more in-depth instruction manual for a product at that time. So again, you're looking at something that is really professionally done. By contrast, the first Ultima did not ship in a big fancy box. Ultima 2 did. Richard Garriott actually sometimes tries to take credit for starting boxes in games with Ultima 2, but mm, Wizardry did it first. SSI did it even before <laughs> Surtech did with Wizardry. But, uh, you know, that's another thing that set the product apart in this very early time. So it was extensively beta tested. It was essentially demoed and publicly baited. It had professional box design. It had professional manual. It just had all of these trappings that you wouldn't expect from a computer game at that time. And it was a bigger program and a more sophisticated program than people were used to because of the use of the Pascal programming language. It had this great big dungeon to explore of like nine levels. It had various different monsters. All of these monsters were pictured in the game. You know, you think of its contemporaries like Temple of Apshai that we talked about in our Automated Simulations Epics episode, which predated Wizardry as being a role-playing game. But since it started on the PET and the TRS-80, it had character-based graphics and, you know, wasn't much to look at. Even though it was popular and fun, it wasn't nearly as sophisticated as Wizardry. So Wizardry comes along, and it's just like nothing anyone had ever seen before. Though it didn't end up coming out as Dungeons of Despair. Because as we've talked about before, in the context of other games, this was a period when TSR, <laughs> people behind Dungeons & Dragons, were very, very, very litigious. So anything that had dungeons in the name, anything that had dragons in the name, and especially anything that could be abbreviated with a double D, in this case it would be D of D instead of, or D-O-D instead of D-N-D, but still, it's a double D abbreviation, is going to get a threat from TSR's lawyers. And since these early games are being done by these small companies that don't want to get tied up in court, even though oftentimes the TSR going after people was very spurious. I mean, dungeon's a common word. Sorry. And there were games, you know, it, it, just, it just doesn't work. You know, these small companies don't want to get involved in litigation, so it's much easier to just change the name. And that's why Wizardry, the original, is not known as Dungeons of Despair, but is actually known as Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord. Because at the last minute, they needed a new title. Keep in mind that, and this is very true for small companies today, and even some medium to large companies today, even though you are entirely in the right, as far as a legal perspective goes, someone can come along and say, I'm suing you, or I'm doing a cease and desist letter to you. You can't do anything. I'm throwing all this money at you. And they pretty much just bury you under legal minutiae so that you're spending all your money, time, and effort defending yourself, it might take six months, a year, two years in order to get that all sorted out. And even though you are completely and utterly right, you're not going to get that money back. You're not going to get that time back in many cases. Definitely not the time back. Almost certainly not your money back. Exactly. So they just went ahead and gave it a different name, which is completely understandable. And it took off just like a rocket for the time. 
within nine months, it had sold at least 24,000 copies. Computer Gaming World did a survey at that time where they asked companies how their games were selling, and it was a much different industry back then, not as cutthroat, so a lot of companies actually responded and <laughs> told them how much some of their games had sold, and that's what Wizardry was recorded as selling. It was one of the larger sellers on that list, too, which it wasn't a complete list because not every publisher participated and some publishers just reported what their top selling game was and not how all their games were selling. So you can't call that an absolute ranking, but it was near the top of that list. Within a couple of years, it had sold 100,000 units, which in those early days was phenomenal. In those days, 50,000 was a hit, 100,000 you were over the moon, so just because the scale was so much smaller. So that was a massive, massive hit. Definitely led the field in RPGs. It left Ultima in the dust at that specific period in time. It was just a phenomenon. So, of course, there had to be a sequel. Nah. But here's where the problems start to develop, and they really are problems. Just like Temple of Apshai and Automated Simulations, which we talked about in that episode, Woodhead and Greenberg kind of saw the system they were creating akin to releasing a core D&D experience, a core D&D rulebook, and then creating adventure modules that take that core D&D gameplay and put it in other settings. So you may recall from our Automated Simulations episode that after Apshai came out and after Apshai was a hit, the next couple of quote-unquote games that Automated Simulations did in the RPG genre were essentially expansions to that game where you took the same basic system of Apshai and then just put it in different environments. Pretty much a rehash of the same thing. Right. So that's the exact same kind of approach that Woodhead and Greenberg took with Wizardry 2. Wizardry 2 actually required you, not, oh, wouldn't it be nice because you'll get a fuller appreciation, required you to have Wizardry 1 characters to import into the game to continue your journey. And it takes off right where Wizardry 1 leaves off in terms of levels as well. So it's not like you, if you own Wizardry 1 and create some characters there, you can just bring them to a new game. No, because you're starting at a higher level. You basically have to have end-game Wizardry 1 characters to import into Wizardry 2. That would make Wizardry 2 very unapproachable for most new players. Exactly. It's essentially an expansion, but it was not presented that way and it was not marketed that way. I mean, it is Wizardry Knight of Diamonds. It is a new wizardry game. It came out about six months after the original, at the beginning of 1982. You had to have 13th level characters to transfer into it. It was a decent game. Obviously, it continued to be hard, but they made a few fixes to smooth some things over. It was designed a little better, but it was essentially an expansion marketed as a full game. So this is the point where you start getting diminishing returns. They probably thought that this was a safe and smart idea at the time because the original Wizardry really was a phenomenon that really sold well. They probably figured that they had enough of a built-in user base for the first game that they'd get a lot of sales of a second game that required the first game. And I think they were very much thinking in terms of D&D-style character progression and D&D-style modules where you just take your characters from one dungeon to the next dungeon to the next dungeon, each one getting harder, 
but your characters are leveling up, you're gaining more experience. And so they were kind of really stuck in this D&D mindset. But this was the beginning of diminishing returns, because while every Ultima game outsells the Ultima game that comes before it, because even though they're often very loosely linked to each other, or even sometimes more closely linked to each other, they're still distinct games where you start with uh, you start your character over each time, even when you're playing the same protagonist, you're starting over each time. You don't have to have had the earlier game to play the later game. So sales increased with each version of Ultima. You have the opposite effect that starts happening here. Because you never, ever, ever have 100% of your audience of an original game buying the sequel. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have bigger sales of your sequel than your original game, because you bring in new players, too. But not everyone adopts your sequel. Some people buy it and they decide it's not for them. Some people it was for them, but a couple of years later, for whatever reason, they're no longer into this kind of thing. And so they're just not interested in continuing. Maybe you don't even realize that there is a second game, so you don't buy it. There are a lot of reasons that the buyers of your first game don't buy your second game. So when you're locking it in so that only players of your first game can play your second game, you've just shrunk your sales. Without doing anything, even if you have a great game, you've just shrunk your sales. It's completely unplayable for someone <laughs> else who's new and goes, oh, I heard about Wizardry. I'll pick up Wizardry too. Maybe they improved it. Right. What do you mean I need a first game? Yeah, screw this. I'm taking it back. Exactly. You shrink your sales because not everyone adopts it and then new people coming in don't have a clue of what's going on. Now you say, but aha, you have to import a character, but you know these aren't complicated games. You can just use a character editor. And yes, people did make wizardry character editors. This was one of the very first examples of modding tools for an existing game. Tools to modify wizardry save files and create wizardry characters. I mean, obviously there's a cheating element to it, as there always is, but also in part, I think, driven by the fact that you need characters in order to progress. But keep in mind that that necessitates a certain level of technical competency in order to figure out how to write that program or a certain level of interconnectivity into a community in order to get your hands on that tool if you're so inclined to do that. Your average person is going to be, hey, I'm going to buy this nice game. Ooh, Wizard. Son likes uh, Wizards and Dungeons and Dragons. I'll buy him this Wizardry 2 game. Maybe he'll like it. Kids go, well, I can't run this because I don't have a character. Well, it's not going to spend the time to figure out how to write the program or hunt down a way to edit the program and be like, oh, well, this thing's poorly made, poorly designed, because you've acquired this previous game or these characters and stuff. Why should I put in the effort? Exactly. And in addition to that, these were completely and totally untolerated by Surtech, by Greenberg and Woodhead. They even put a letter, I think, in the, in the third game, basically saying, don't use these character editors because they'll destroy the play balance of the game and you may risk corrupting your characters and all of that. They were adamantly against it. They wanted people to quote-unquote play the games the right way, which is fine if that's your thing, but that ain't going to be everybody's thing. Alienate the uh, user base. It's actually kind of funny to think of this because they came about the entire idea behind Wizardry with the Play-Doh system they're on Play-Doh trying to play games the way they want to play games. The admins <laughs> are kicking them off Play-Doh. And here they are going, I'm selling out this game. I'm selling this game, Wizardry 1, Wizardry 2, Wizardry 3. And in Wizardry 3, they go, 
you have to play this the way we want to. You can't edit and change it. <laughs> exactly. It is kind of funny. It is, it is kind of funny. It's kind of weird, but that's the way they felt about it. They were very much purists. So the third game, with the entirely unpronounceable name of Legacy of Lilligaman, or whatever it is, the third game has you progress from the second game and gives you even more challenges and even more high-level stuff. Once again, you're taking in your character from the other two games. You're still required to have the first game to create characters. You didn't have to have the second game to play the third game, but you had to have the first game. And the crazy thing is, in the third game, they actually had you start over. The second game was a direct sequel where you had to import a high-level character to play. The third game actually started you back over at level one. That's good. But you still had to create a character in Wizardry 1. And then your character in Wizardry 3, your characters, I should say, it's multiplayer, or multiple characters, not multiplayer. Your characters in Wizardry 3 then were the descendants of your characters in Wizardry 1. So you still had to own one to play three. Why not just say, we're starting at level one. It's the reborn heroes of a forgotten age or whatever. You're the character creator. Have fun, kids. I really think it's the D&D mentality. In D&D, you buy the base game, you fool around with that, and then if you're buying new adventures rather than your dungeon master creating them, you go buy a module in order to have a new adventure. But you still need the base game to play the module because it has the basic rules and stuff that you need to play the game. And I think that's what the mentality was. Wizardry Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord was the base wizardry game. Everything else were modules riffing on the base game. And so you have to understand, all three of these games used the same engine. Now, they, they didn't come out that far apart, 81, 83. It's over a two-year period. But they're all using the same engine. They fix a few bugs and modify a few things as they go along. But they pretty much are looking the same. Same engine, same gameplay, and you have to own at least the first one, no matter what else you're doing. Meanwhile. Ultima, and I know I keep bringing up Ultima, but it's important because these are the two. These are the two franchises. At the same time, Ultima is changing each time because Richard Garriott is rewriting the games each time. So each Ultima is more sophisticated than the one that came before. Each Ultima has more things going on. Each Ultima is bigger than the one that came before. Whereas wizardry is the same thing over and over again. Yes, there are new challenges, higher level challenges, different monsters. They're not complete carbon copies. But it's basically the same thing over and over again while the main competition is changing. So Ultima sales are going up, up, up. Wizardry sales, even though they started much higher, even though wizardry was one of the first mega hits on the Apple II, wizardry sales are going down, down, down. You know, it makes sense based off of how it's designed. Yes. Ultima is approachable. I can pick up, I can hear new nice things about it. I pick up Ultima 2. Ooh, more ex- expansion. I start from the beginning. I can go in. I get a cloth map. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Ultima 3. I don't know what's going on here, but there's a thing called Ambrosia, and I can <laughs> figure out these shrines and some sort of strange robot computer thing. But that's okay. We don't care. We're having fun here. And the music's good. Wizardry, I got the first one. Great. D&D. I'm in there. I'm fighting monsters. I'm getting treasure. Fantastic. Wizardry 2. Okay, I need to play Wizardry 1 all the way through to the end. 
but I couldn't get to the end. I only did it that one time and only like two people survived. (laughs) This is going to be a nightmare. Wizardry 3. Why can't I just make a character? (laughs) Because I'm already level one. Yeah. Why can't I just say, okay, fine. I'm just editing. What do you mean I, you don't want me to edit a character? No. (laughs) And even though this is only over the course of two years, Things are moving so fast. Things are changing so fast in those days that that really is a long time. Even today, if you look at a game and its sequel that comes out two years later, there can be a lot of differences. Back then, that was a lot of time. An epoch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and nothing's changing and you're still required the first game. And so, yeah, the, the sales are starting to go down. Oh, and I, sh- I should also mention that that third game wasn't even really designed by Andrew Greenberg anymore. You know, he had kind of been the principal designer on the first two games. He was starting to kind of lose interest in all of that, and it was actually mostly his friends, his college buddies, the people that had helped playtest the first game. They were the ones that designed the third game. Not that it was necessarily an awful game or anything, but it's just the principal designer didn't even necessarily have his heart in it anymore. The other thing that was going on during this time period is these were all Apple II games, which is fine, but as newer, more popular systems come out, like the Commodore 64, they don't port Wizardry to these other platforms. Wizardry is remaining an Apple II game only. Now, the rationale they gave for this is that, as I said, they were using Pascal, and Woodhead didn't think that either the Atari 8-bit computers nor the Commodore 64 could really accommodate UCSD Pascal because of their disk systems, uh, their disk drives. Atari, their disk system didn't have enough memory for Pascal. Meanwhile, we've talked before about how the Commodore 64 had the slowest disk drive in all of existence. (laughs) Think of the slowest load you've ever had on a computer, and then, I don't know, multiply it by 10 times. I mean, it was bad. Let me put it this way, kids. I had a Commodore 64. I would get home from preschool, grade school, or whatever. I wanted to play Xevious. I would go downstairs. I would type out this helpful command that Dad had for me to load Xevious, and then it would say loading. I would go have dinner. I would come back down, and it would still be loading. Yeah. Go watch a cartoon. Oh, look, the game finally loaded. Great. And, you know, these were legitimate problems with uh, the Atari computers and the Commodore 64, but they weren't insurmountable problems. Woodhead could have created a fast loader for the Commodore 64. Those existed. We talked about how Epix made a lot of money with a fast loader. He could have done more advanced compression techniques for the Atari systems. But he apparently wasn't very interested in tools. I mean, he was interested in programming the games, but for whatever reason, he wasn't interested in programming tools. So since nobody else was creating tools to make Pascal run on those systems, since the tools didn't exist, they didn't port to them. So now Wizardry is not only failing to change and modernize, but it's stuck on a machine that is slowly starting to lose relevance. 1983 was the peak year for the Apple II. After 1983, the Apple II starts its decline as a major gaming platform as the Commodore 64 gains more traction. So they're on the wrong system at the wrong time. And then comes Wizardry 4. As I've said before, 
Greenberg and Woodhead were very much about this sense of danger and this sense of death around every corner. They generally wanted it to be surmountable, but they wanted the threat to be there. Well, they've released three games at this point, all in the same series. Obviously, their players are very good at this point. Because remember, their player base consists pretty much of all of people who have been playing since the first game. Because you need the first game to play the sequels. By this time, the ones that have stayed around, the sales are diminishing, but they've got a hardcore base here now. And this hardcore base has accomplished everything they can accomplish in the first three wizardries. They've thrown more high-level challenges at them. Those challenges have been met. So now for Wizardry 4, they decide that they have to play to that hardcore base. So Wizardry 4 is the first one where you don't have to load Wizardry first in order to play it. That's good! (laughs) Yeah, but they are pandering to the hardest core of the hardest core audience. They bring in, again, because Greenberg's not really designing anymore, they bring in an outside designer to do Wizardry 4 by the name of Roe Adams. Roe Adams is a guy that had gotten a lot of notoriety in early computer gaming circles because he was a real hotshot adventure game player. And he was a writer that reviewed software for Soft Talk magazine, which existed for a few years in the early 80s and was kind of It wasn't put out by Apple, but it kind of became the default Apple magazine that not just consumers were using, but that even people inside the industry were referring to. So he was a reviewer for Soft Talk. He was really, really good at adventure games. We talked about Sierra's Ridiculous Time Zone game in our online system Sierra episode. Really big game for the time, but really empty and really hard and arbitrarily hard, not hard for good game design, just really bang your head against the wall. Why is this happening hard? Well, Roe Adams solved it. May have been the very first person to ever solve it. Now, you don't know that for certain, but certainly he was the only one with a national platform like a magazine that solved it. So he gained a reputation as a whiz at these kind of games. He started writing columns and reviews for just about every magazine under the sun. He became real close to game developers. He even wrote some manuals for some of the Ultima games. They brought him in to do Wizardry 4's design, The Return of Wordna, where in a twist, you actually play the antagonist of the first game after he's been defeated as he tries to escape from his prison and go out and avenge his defeat. So that's an interesting twist. You get to be the bad guy. Yes, but... They're writing it for their hardcore, hardcore audience, plus the designer of it is one of the most expert players of this kind of game ever, and he's bringing that level of ability and thought into it. It's ludicrous. You thought you enjoyed your Dark Souls with your permadeath and everything else. God. Let me tell you about Wizardry 4. Yeah, so of course we've <laughs> talked about this before. It's Of course there are still hard games today and, and games that cater to a hardcore, and Dark Souls is a great example of that. But as we talked about before, Dark Souls is a game that feels fair. It's going to defeat you over and over and over again. Each boss encounter is going to defeat you over and over and over again. But every time you fight that boss, you learn a little more about that boss. You figure out a little more about its weak points. 
and it feels like you are doing this over and over again to eventually overcome the challenge, and it feels like you're getting a little closer, a little closer, a little closer each time. In Wizardry 4, for whatever bizarre reason, there are no experience points for killing monsters. Okay, then. There's no leveling up from monster battles. You do still increase your character's abilities, but only by finding a pentagram on each level that boosts your stats when you find it. So there's no grinding. Because one of the things that makes RPGs accessible is no matter how bad you are at those kind of games, you could theoretically just grind all the way up to the max level in Dragon Quest by killing slimes. You'd probably want to kill yourself from boredom before you ever got there. But you could theoretically just stay around Tentacle Castle, kill slimes for 500 hours until you reach max level and then make the rest of the game a cakewalk. There's always that release there to help you if you're a less advanced player and don't understand the mechanics as well. Well, this game doesn't have that. You only gain stats at arbitrary places, and you can't wail away on lower-level enemies until you feel comfortable with them and then take on higher-level enemies. In effect, Dark Souls meets King's Quest. (laughs) Right. There are monsters that can use abilities or cast spells that wipe your party before you ever have a chance to do anything. You literally never had a chance if they happen to use that ability before you get an attack in, then boom, you're gone. There are thieves in the game that can steal from you. There are certain key items in the game that you need. The thief can take an item from you, and the game's unwinnable, but you don't necessarily know it's unwinnable at that point, so you zombie state for a while. The mapping is impossible because there's teleporters and rotating floors and all sorts of other stuff that completely mess with you at every step. Early RPGs didn't have an auto map, so people would make their own maps on graph paper. And games like even the earlier Wizardries would occasionally try to trip you up by putting a teleporter here or there, taking you to another part of a dungeon, so then you have to figure out how your map connects. But even then, it was somewhat logical in how it did it. This one just throws in all sorts of crazy things that completely disorient you and make mapping nearly impossible for any except the most dedicated of mappers. It's insane. And worse, at this time, Robert Woodhead is getting interested in other platforms and other uses of Pascal and porting the older wizardries to like the Macintosh and adding things like mouse support and all of this, which is fine, but he's spending more time doing that than he is programming Wizardry 4. Wizardry 4 was due to come out in November of 1984. When I say it was due to come out in November 1984, I'm saying that they told Insider Magazine, which was one of the, another Apple magazine that that people read, they told Insider Magazine to go ahead in their November 1984 issue and announce that Return of Wordna was available because it was merely a formality that it would be available. Wizardry 4 came out in 1987. Wait, what? 1987. Three years later. Yes. Using the same engine that every Wizardry game had used. So, 1981 standard of game engine. On the Apple II, and only the Apple II, which was a nearly dead platform by 1987, and two years after Interplay's Bard's Tale came out, which took the basic gameplay of Wizardry 
transported it to the infinitely more popular Commodore 64 platform and just livened up the audiovisual of it. I mean, you're still in black and white wireframes in Wizardry 4, just like you were in Wizardry 1. Bard's Tale has gone and given you environments that look like environments two years earlier. Needless to say, Wizardry 4 was an absolute unmitigated disaster. I would expect so. On top of the massive delay of three years, it has no innovation at all. It's insanely hard. You're going on Apple IIs, which at that point are pretty much only in schools. And yeah. For a lot of companies, that would have been the end. Surtech, however, is able to last for another decade after that disastrous, disastrous release. And in the second part of our look at Surtech software, we will explore how the company was able to overcome these obstacles, how the company was able to keep going, and even keep going with some success for several more years before ultimately fading away. And this was totally a plan two-parter. Always. Every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then we will see you next time in the Necromatic Zombie of Surtech on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 